Let's open the Scriptures to the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 36, in the Pew Bible, page 917, 917. This passage in Ezekiel serves as background for the conversation between the Lord Jesus and Nicodemus, which will form our text, or at least a good part of our text this morning in John chapters 2 and 3. So Ezekiel prophesies to the people in Babylon as they're exiled in Babylon. We'll begin at verse 16 and carry on to verse 32. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, When the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries." In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, in that people said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, And a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Please turn with me to the Gospel of John. Our text will be drawn from the end of chapter 2, 
page 1129 of the Pew Bible, 1129. But before we begin reading from the text, I'd like to just read a few verses from chapter 1. As we've been working our way in this series of sermons through the letter of John, we've seen there's that the gospel writer connects very strongly to the opening 18 verses as he works his way through the gospel, through the, the whole book. And this morning's text really connects strongly with the verses 9 through 13 of chapter 1. So just to remind us and make that connection, chapter 1, verse 9, the true light, and you understand that that's the Lord Jesus Christ, the true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of, of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And now we turn to chapter 2, verse 23, and we're going to read into chapter 3 all the way to 21, end of 21, but our text will focus on up to verses 3, chapter 3, verse 12, inclusive. But the whole context is helpful. So chapter 2, verse 23, now when he, that's the Lord Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, or as the footnote has it, born from above, the word can be read either way, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, 
How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So far, the, the reading, and then I remind you that the text uh, the focus of the sermon is chapter 2, verse 23, into chapter 3, verse 12. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we move along in John's gospel, we find ourselves moving from deeds to discussion or dialogue, from conduct to conversation. We've already seen in chapter 2 the actions of Jesus that John records for us. First, the changing of water into wine up north in Galilee. And then Jesus comes south to Jerusalem and reforms Israel's worship by cleansing out the temple of God. And now the gospel writer leads us into several conversations, either involving Jesus or the conversation is about Jesus. We have in our text first the discussion with Nicodemus between Jesus and Nicodemus. That's followed by a discussion between John and his disciples about Jesus. And then in chapter 4, there's this lengthy interchange between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. This is part of how the writer shows us the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember his goal? We saw that in an earlier sermon. John's goal in writing this gospel is that we and many others who will read it may come to believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah, and as John puts it, that believing we may have life in His name. That's the goal, that we may have life in Jesus' name. So these conversations that we're coming into, very much like those actions and the miracles of Jesus, they teach us about our Savior they teach us what it means to believe in His name because that's the key to getting eternal life. 
And this whole action of believing in the name of Jesus is, in fact, the underlying issue in our text. What exactly does it mean to believe in that name? What exactly is true faith? When someone says that they believe in Jesus, is that all there is to it? What is this act of believing in Christ all about, and how do we know that such faith is legitimate, that such faith actually will bring about that promised eternal life? Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus gets at the root of this issue, and so I proclaim to you this word of the Lord under this theme, a true believer is a radically changed person. A true believer is a radically changed person. We'll see two points, that there is such a thing as hollow faith and also such a thing as hallowed faith. Well, you probably have noticed by now in this series of sermons that the writer John, throughout his gospel, he sprinkles his own inspired commentary here and there. He does that alongside of recording the ministry of Jesus. He does it again in chapter 2, verse 23 through 25, where he comments on how the crowds respond to Jesus' miracles. He writes this, verse 23, Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. There's that word believed. And you should know that's a very important word. It's, it's a verb. The author of John always uses it as a verb. For him, it's a, a very important word. We find it 99 times in his gospel. Interestingly, John never uses the noun faith, as in we might say many people put their faith in Jesus, or Jesus Himself says in the other Gospels, uh, so-and-so, your faith has saved you. John is always interested in the action of believing. He consistently puts that focus on a person or person's act of believing. And here he says the crowds believe in Jesus' name. That sounds pretty good, right? I mean, if you're tracking through John's gospel, just reading from chapter 1 following, and you just come to chapter 2, verse 23, you would have a fairly positive impression of that verse, of what John means. We should find this rather encouraging because despite the fact that in chapter 1, verse 11, we're told, and we read that, that Christ would not be received by His own, Verse 12 of that chapter immediately adds, but to all who did receive Him, to all who believed in His name, there's that verb again, He gave the right to become children of God. And as you read through chapter 1, you come across Nathaniel in verse 50, who is said to have believed. And after the changing of water into wine, chapter 2, verse 11, the gospel writer informs us that Jesus' disciples believed in Him. And these are very clearly positive developments. 
So, coming into chapter 2, verse 23, you would feel very positive about John's description that the crowds believe in Jesus' name. And this is, by the way, the first glimpse we get of the crowds and how they respond. Up until now in John's gospel, we've seen the reaction of individual persons, such as Nathaniel and the few disciples that Jesus had. We've seen the unbelieving opposition of the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders. But now we are shown the response of thousands of Israelites gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover. You have to remember there were tens of thousands in the city. People were crowding for the Passover. And John says they believe in Jesus. Or do they? Sounds genuine. At first, yet there may be a shadow of trouble, as John hints at it in verse 23, many believed in His name when they saw the signs that He was doing. Now, those signs, you recall from an earlier sermon, are the miracles that Jesus performed, miracles that were meant to confirm His identity, His claim to be Messiah. And John tells us that Jesus was doing lots of miracles in the city. And from the other Gospels, we know that. The other Gospels record many healings of the sick, the raising up of the lame, the casting out of demons, and more. And people were drawn to this Jesus of Nazareth like iron to a magnet. They flocked to Him, and they believed. They believed because of the signs. Now, in and of itself, that's not an issue because John has told us that the disciples believed in Jesus after the sign of changing water into wine. So, in verse 23 of our text, everything's looking fine. There's widespread, apparently widespread faith in Jesus, but in the next breath, the gospel writer warns us that everything is not as it seems. Verse 24, but Jesus, on His part, did not entrust Himself to them because He knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man, for He Himself knew what was in man. The author here uses a play on words to make, make the point and make the contrast very stark. That verb, entrust, where it says that Jesus did not entrust Himself to the crowds, is the same word, the same verb, to believe. So, to translate rather freely, John is telling us, the crowds believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in the crowds. He knew what was in man. What's that referring to? Well, we go back to the opening chapters, uh, opening verses of the gospel. The spiritual darkness that is referred to there is what is in man. The light came to shine in the darkness, chapter 1 says. And, and Jesus Himself says it at the end, toward the end of chapter 3. Jesus was witnessing to the crowds, the crowds of God's people, and they were responding with belief. But Jesus, knowing what was in man, He knew that the belief was only skin deep. Their faith, you see, was hollow. 
What we're learning here, brothers and sisters, and what we need to understand is that there is such a thing as a faulty kind of believing, as well as something called a genuine believing. There's a faith which is real and true, and there's a faith, on the other hand, which is nothing more than a hollow, empty, useless shell. True faith and a false faith. Which do you have? It's a vital question because the false faith gets you nothing. The true faith gets you eternal life. Both kinds of faith are impressed by Jesus' miracles. Both are excited by His show of power. Both kinds of faith have, a, have an interest in Jesus. They even want to follow Jesus. But only one kind of faith will stay with Jesus through thick and thin, come what may. The kind of faith that loves the light Jesus brings the kind that accepts and obeys all of His teaching, the kind that radically changes a person into a true child of God. That's the real deal. It's this distinction that we see unfolding in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, which comes on the heels of these comments of the narrator. These comments in verses 23 to 25, they lead into and they set up the conversation that takes place with Nicodemus at night. Notice that it specifies a nighttime conversation. Well, nighttime, you know, is a time of darkness. Details are important in all of Scripture and in John's Gospel things that happen at night are very often symbolic of the spiritual darkness of the moment and more broadly the spiritual darkness of the sinful world mentioned in chapter 1. For example, later John will tell us in chapter 13 that as Judas went out from the Last Supper, as he went out of the upper room, it was night. What was Judas going out to do? He was going out to betray Jesus into the hands of those who would murder him. It was night, spiritually dark as well as physically dark. And so that little, that little word night here, that little description, it puts us on notice that there's something about Nicodemus's words that have a darkness to them. Nicodemus, you see, is a representative of the crowds. Of all those in Israel mentioned in verses 23 and 24, he's a man, it says there. Jesus knew what was in a man. Now verse 3, verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees. That's the same Greek word, anthropos. John is making a connection. And like the crowds, Nicodemus is drawn to Jesus specifically because of the signs, those miraculous signs. And Nicodemus is a good representative of the crowds because from a human perspective, you could say he's the best of the lot. He's the most qualified Israelite to express a faith in Jesus. He's a Pharisee. 
John tells us he's a ruler of the Jews, so he's part of that Sanhedrin. Later, Jesus calls him, verse 10, the teacher of Israel. So this is a very esteemed man in the Jewish community. If anybody should have been able to discern who Jesus really is, it would be the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus. And that's how Nicodemus starts the conversation. It's, it's a statement of confession. Verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Well, that's exactly what the crowds were thinking, right? They believed in Jesus because of the signs. Nicodemus is echoing that. We know God sent you. He uses the plural we because he, as the teacher of Israel, represents Israel. We know that you are sent from God. We believe that you are from God. Well, if you were Jesus, hearing those words, what would, what would you think? How would you respond? You might think Jesus would appreciate those words. No doubt Nicodemus thought that Jesus would welcome this confession of faith from one of Israel's top leaders. I mean, the other leaders were giving Jesus grief. Here's Nicodemus saying, I and many others, we believe that you're from God. You might have expected Jesus to welcome Nicodemus with open arms and say what he said on another occasion to Zacchaeus. You remember that. You might have expected Jesus to say here, I rejoice, Nicodemus. I rejoice that salvation has come to you and to the people today. You believe. That's fantastic. But Jesus knows what's in the heart of Nicodemus and the crowds that he represents. And so not only is he not impressed by what Nicodemus says, but he exposes their emptiness. His response to Nicodemus cuts to the heart. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, you come to me thinking that you know me as God's servant, but you don't know anything. In fact, you can't even see God's kingdom. This respected teacher of Israel, by the admonition now of the Lord Jesus, he's suddenly demoted to a kid in kindergarten class. You don't even know. You can't even see God's kingdom. Truly, truly, says Jesus. Let me pause over that for a moment. That's a unique phrase found only ever on Jesus' lips in the whole Bible in this manner and only found in John's gospel. We find it in John's gospel some 25 times, three times in our text alone. And it's actually a challenge to translate that. Some English versions have, I tell you the truth. 
or the King James, the older version, verily, verily. But they're all translating what Jesus literally says, Amen, Amen. Amen is a Hebrew word taken over by Jesus and by others into the Greek language of His day in exactly the same way that we have taken it over into the English language. You already know Hebrew. You can say amen. Greek, you see, it does have its own word, which means truly. But Jesus doesn't choose to use that word. Instead, He takes a very well-known Hebrew word, well-known through its, for its use all throughout the Old Testament, and He employs it now, but He, he uses it in a totally brand new way. When you look through the Old Testament, that word amen is always spoken in response, in response to somebody else's words, frequently to something God is saying, very much like we'll sing the threefold amen at the end of this service. We do that in response to God's words of blessing. And when we say amen, its basic meaning of that word is, is to express the wish, let it be so. May this come true. When we say amen, when people say amen, it's to express our personal agreement with, it's to express our involvement with the word spoken. I really, really want these things to happen and come true. I trust even that you will bring them true, O Lord. So, amen is a response. That's typically how it's used. But Jesus, He repurposes the word. And he uses amen to introduce his own words. And he doubles it. Amen, amen. Nobody else had spoken like this. And it would have arrested the ears of the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus. He'd never heard people talk like that before. This word of affirmation, this word that expresses truth and agreement with respect to others, is turned around by Jesus to underline and highlight the truthfulness of what He's about to say. It's a bold move. It declares in a very short way His own authority. He does not need to have others say amen to what He's going to say. He says it for Himself, and it's legitimate because He is the Christ. The Word. He is the Son of Man, the Son of God from the Father. In fact, Jesus is the living Amen. The thing that He will say, it will actually come to pass because He has the authority to make it come to pass. He's the Christ. So, right from Jesus' first word to Nicodemus, Nicodemus is confronted by an authority he was not expecting, an authority that blows him away, a man who speaks with the kind of absolute conviction that only God Almighty speaks with. Was Nicodemus prepared to acknowledge Jesus to be God, to be the living Word, the Son of God, the Almighty Himself? Are we prepared to acknowledge that? 
Nicodemus, like the crowds, was prepared to accept Jesus as a mighty prophet sent from God with power to work miracles. But to see this Jesus as God in the flesh, to see Him as the long-promised Christ who would save them, that's another matter. And you know, lots of people still today acknowledge Jesus to be a significant figure a significant historical figure, even a great teacher, even a great prophet of God. Like the Muslims, for example, accept that Jesus is a great prophet from God. The Hindus have no problem acknowledging Jesus as one of the greatest teachers in the history of the world. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses also exalt Jesus to a large degree, but their Belief is hollow and empty and useless because they do not accept Jesus as Almighty God with supreme authority in heaven and on earth to see that, to see the kingdom of God, you have to have eyes to see the King. You have to have eyes to see the Son of God standing there in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And to see that and confess that, you have to be born from above, says Jesus. There's further proof. I'd like you to see that with me. Further proof in our text that Nicodemus and the crowds do not have true faith. It comes out in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 3. Jesus says there, Amen, amen, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So Jesus speaks in the plural there. It starts off with you, plural. You, Nicodemus and the crowds you represent, you do not receive our testimony. That's the plural, first person plural, our testimony. Who is the our? Well, that naturally would refer to both John the Baptist and Jesus together. They are sent as a pair from God. You crowds actually, and Nicodemus, you haven't believed our testimony. Well, that idea of testimony, we've run into that a few times in this gospel. It comes up a number of times in chapter 1. Testify, bear witness, it's all over chapter 1. John the Baptist is described as one who's been sent from God to bear witness to the Christ, which is exactly what he did in chapter 1, verse 29 to 34. John pointing to Jesus as he came walking up, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And then he added, On whom the Spirit descended and remained, this is he who ranks before me because he was before me, indicating Jesus being of God. John goes on, I baptize you with water, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
And then John caps it off, verse 34, chapter 1, and I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John's, John the Baptist's testimony about the identity of Jesus being the Son of God, being before John the Baptist, this is a matter of public record. It's known to the crowds. It's known to this Nicodemus, teacher of Israel. That's a testimony that has also been supplemented now by Jesus' own miracles, which the gospel writer calls signs. These miraculous signs, they validate John's testimony that Jesus is in fact the Son of God come down from heaven. The signs prove it. But Jesus tells us and tells Nicodemus, neither you nor the people actually believe that. You have not accepted our testimony, at least not yet. Jesus says it plainly, verse 12, you do not believe. What we've got there at the end of John 2 and and in Nicodemus is we have star-struck people. They're star-struck by the miracle worker of Nazareth, and that's natural enough. We see someone doing amazing things. We are amazed, right? Even a magician's trick. It's a very human reaction. It's an amazing, amazing miracle worker, but it's not yet faith. To believe that Jesus has power to heal and revive and make whole, that is something, even a good thing, but by itself, it's not the faith, not the kind of believing that saves a person. To be drawn to Jesus because... He says and does really cool things because He makes you think and gives you a good example and you you like His style. All of that is very human, but it's not yet believing. Not yet believing in order to have life in His name. To have eternal life, you must accept all the testimony of Jesus That He is the Son of God who came as the Lamb of God to sacrifice His life for sinners like you and like me. And only the Holy Spirit can work that in you and me. A true faith, a hallowed faith. Nicodemus is taken aback by Jesus' response. He wasn't expecting that. He thought Jesus would welcome him warmly. But now Nicodemus feels affronted and challenged and also confused by Jesus' words. And so he asks, how can this be? Like, how can a man be born a second time when when he is old? Can he enter a second time to his mother's womb and be born? And he probably was thinking, what's this business about us not being able to even see the kingdom of God. We are Jews. We're Pharisees. I'm a Pharisee. We've been preparing ourselves for the coming of God's kingdom all our lives. That's what we're about, the kingdom of God. We are God's covenant people. We are citizens of God's kingdom. How can you say, Jesus, that we won't be able even to see the kingdom unless we are born again? Nicodemus is thinking in strictly physical terms. So Jesus replies with another way of putting it so that that, that really should have resonated with Nicodemus 
who was, as we've said, Israel's teacher. As Israel's teacher, he would have been a man who would would have known the Scriptures, right? Our Old Testament, that was their Scriptures. He would have known them like the back of his hand, including the book of Ezekiel. So Jesus says to him, verse 5, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born from above. Do not marvel, Nicodemus. This teaching comes straight out of the prophets. It comes straight out of Ezekiel. This should be in your wheelhouse, man. You're the teacher of Israel. You should know this stuff. For indeed, the Lord had spoken clearly through Ezekiel in that chapter we read, chapter 36. And the Lord there mentions both water and the Spirit, the Spirit of God. He mentions them in parallel with each other. The water is a picture to help us understand the work that God's Spirit must do and will do upon the people of God, the work of cleansing them from the inside. Ezekiel, you know, was prophesying to God's people, the Israelites, who were living at that time in exile, in misery, way far away in the land of Babylon. How did they get there? Well, it was God who put them there. God punished the Israelites by exiling them to that faraway land. And why? Because of Israel's long-standing rebellion, Israel's long-standing sin and wicked ways, which the Lord describes in verse 17 of that chapter as Israel's uncleannesses, in the plural. He says, their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land for the idols which they had defiled, with which they had defiled it. Israel, the defiler, you see, that's what they had become. They had defiled God's land. They had profaned God's name with their evil ways. And so God removed them from His holy land. Well, what was the ultimate solution then? For God's sinful people far away in the land of Babylon. Could Israel stop sinning of its own accord? Could God's people decide and, and with, with the strength of their will that they're going to repent, they're going to believe in God, they're then going to obey His commandments from that time onward? Well, that was impossible. History had proven time and again that God's people only had the ability to drift into sin by themselves. They could not pull themselves out of sin. And so the Lord promises to do something for them which they could not do for themselves. God promises in Ezekiel 36, a miracle of miracles. I, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, 
and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules, and you shall be my people, and I shall be your God. I'm going to do it, says the Lord. What Israel needed was a brand spanking new heart. What Nicodemus and the crowds then and what you and I need today is equally to have our natural sinful heart of stone taken out of us and a new heart transplanted within us, a heart that is alive unto God. This is the new birth that Jesus is talking about, a spiritual birth brought about by the will of God through the Spirit. That's why I prefer that expression of born from above because it comes from God. We're born of the will of God. Chapter 1, verse 13. That changes a person radically. It changes a person from a defiler of God's commandments to a follower of God's will from rebel servant to regal son, from heaven's outcast to God's loved and loving child. Nicodemus not only should have known what was needed, he should have been praying for it and eagerly waiting for it. You see, Nicodemus, like the rest of the Pharisees, believed he was already acceptable to God on account of his law-keeping ability. The Pharisees, they had set out to obey the commandments with the belief that when Israel as a nation sufficiently obeyed God's law, then God would reward them by sending the Messiah King to establish the kingdom on earth. Over the years, they got pretty good at fine-tuning the law of God even adding their own laws and customs as a kind of a hedge around God's laws so that they would not even come close in their mind to breaking God's commandments. The Pharisees became so adept at keeping all these various commandments that they took pride in it. Remember the Pharisee of Jesus' parable, standing in the temple, boasting to God that he himself was not like other men, not like that tax collector standing down the way with his head bowed, for he had kept God's law unlike that other dude. He had kept God's law down to the last jot and tittle. Pharisees did not think that they needed a radical heart change. Do you? Do I? You see, true faith, a holy faith, a hallowed faith, that just means holy, a faith produced by the Holy Spirit, that kind of faith has three basic marks you can identify it by. It first acknowledges a need for a Savior. It first says, I am unclean in myself. I acknowledge what God says in Ezekiel 36 applies to me. I've got a heart of idolatry. I'm a defiler of God's law. I am by nature a rebel unable to change my ways. I need 
God to intervene. And then true faith goes on to accept the testimony that God has intervened in Jesus. Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my God. Jesus is the Messiah, the Lamb of God. He's the only Savior who has paid for all my sin with His suffering and death and whose righteousness becomes mine by faith. I believe that. And then the third mark, true faith, goes on to express heartfelt love to God and heartfelt gratitude to God. How do we express that love? We do it by obeying the commandments, even as we sang it. Stanza 9 of hymn 11. We do that in the strength of God's Spirit. That all adds up, those three things adds up to radical change. Don't you think? Are those three things present in your life? Don't think of your neighbor now. Don't think of that other person in the pew somewhere. What about you? Because you will have to stand before God, like me. Next Sunday, we hope to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We are to examine ourselves every day, but especially when we come to the Lord's table, the meal of the Lord's Supper, it's not for Pharisees. Not with the Pharisaical beliefs. It's not for the prideful. It's not for the self-sufficient. You know who it's for? It's for the busted and the bruised and the broken. It's for the contrite in heart and those who are sorry for their sins and those who truly believe in the name, the only name of Jesus Christ, and by believing in that name have eternal life. All those are welcome. And if that describes you, brothers and sisters, then rejoice. Be filled with joy, for you have been born again. You have this new life. You've been born from above. The Holy Spirit has come to you, and through, though, though, though like the wind, you could not see Him. You could not describe the precise actions of what He was doing in your heart, yet the effects of His work are evident and plain in your life. If you see those marks, that's the evidence of the Spirit's work in your life. If it's there, you are God's. You belong to God. You've been born again in the, into the family of God, and that's a position you can never lose. Rejoice and pray for the ongoing, continuing, advancing work of heart transformation because as long as we're in this body with its old nature, it's going to be a process. So pray for the process to continue. Pray for the Holy Spirit to keep blowing His holy wind over your soul and be assured that what God starts, because you're a work of God, whatever God starts he always, always finishes. Amen.